At the heart of that text was this word, let love be genuine. A modern translation presents it this way, let love be unhypocritical. I like that a lot. Let love be unhypocritical. Still another modern translation says, love from the center of who you are. It's quite clear that in the apostles' words here, love is primary. Love is the number one gift. Love is the greatest of gifts, as he says in his letter to the church in Corinth. Love matters more than anything else. There's all kinds of ways we can measure our ministry here at First Community, but the primary measurement, the primary measurement, the one that matters more than any others is this. How well do we love? It's a beautiful text. But you may have noticed just before we got to that central verse, there was a list. May I confess this morning, I find lists in the Bible to be somewhat boring. They're hard for me to memorize. They're hard for me to to keep in mind. I I don't really like lists. Like, what's going on with this list? Another example is, is the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's gospel is one that moves with expediency. It moves with Jesus uh, encountering the world with this, this powerful message, this authentic message of, of God's love given to the world. And he's just, he's like, a, he's like the original blues brother, remember? He's, he's on a mission from God. He's got to get this word out to everyone that he possibly can about the universal love of God given to all. And yet Matthew begins his gospel with a list. It's Jesus' family tree. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Isaac. And and pretty soon, you just start to, at least for me, my eyes begin to glaze over. But here's the thing. Sometimes lists in the Bible are revelatory. Sometimes they're telling us more than we realize. When Matthew's gospel heard that list, they knew that one of those persons in Jesus' family tree was a prostitute. Another one was an adulterer. Another one was a murderer. And still another was a king who was brutal and vicious to to his people. This is the family from which Jesus emerges. It's as though Matthew is saying God's love was given to those as well. God's love is greater than any of those could ever imagine. And this same love is given to us. So maybe we should pay attention to Paul's list here, this list of gifts that he names, the, the gift of prophecy and teaching and, and encouragement and giving and, and, and others. And by the way, it's not meant to be an exhaustive list. There are still more we could, we could add today. There's the gift of coffee making and cookie baking, the gift of parking lot greeting and toilet cleaning. I'm pointing that direction because there's toilets over the other side of that wall. All these gifts matter, and in, in Paul's mind, there's not one that's greater than the other. The gift of prophecy or teaching is no greater than the toilet cleaning or the parking lot greeting. All these gifts matter. In the, in the unity of the church, every gift matters. No gift is too small. They all matter. But here's where kind of the problem starts to come in. Here's the trouble in making a list. Humans have a tendency to create hierarchies. We have a tendency to look at a list like this and say, well, These gifts really are more important than those gifts, aren't they? And we start building almost like we created an organizational chart. We may not put it down in writing, but we create it in our minds. We need more of this and more of that. We don't need so much of those gifts or those over here. 
I had a colleague in ministry in Kansas City who was from a, the other side of theology from where, uh, where I am, where our congregation is. But we'd found a, a mutual friendship as both as pastors, and we would talk a lot about leadership and management, those kinds of things that come up for uh, pastors of congregations like, like the one he served and the one I was serving back then. Somehow, one day over coffee, the gifts of the Spirit came up. And he said, you know, Glenn, only Christians, only followers of Jesus receive these gifts. I kind of smiled and laughed and did a little punch on the shoulder like some guys do, you know, whatever. That was my way of saying, you're not serious, are you? And he said, no, I'm serious. I, I really, only Christians receive these gifts. I said, well, what about my friend Lama Chuck Stanford? He's the primary leader in the Buddhist community here in Kansas City. He's a brilliant teacher, a, a, an energized and entertaining lecturer. He has a different religion than mine, and there, we have some differences of opinion on a variety of things. But I still can gain insight from, from Lama Chuck. He and I have met for coffee and had good conversations. You're saying his, his gift of teaching doesn't come from God? And he and kind of made a little fist, and he said, that's exactly what I'm saying. He got a little angry. I said, I, I really can't accept this. These gifts of God are given to all of God's children, teaching and prophesying and giving and encouraging and all the rest. And he said, no. And if you teach that, you're going to suffer in eternity in torment. So I've got that going for me. <laughs> There's a temptation, isn't there? There's a temptation. And I'm going I'm to be broad here among the universal church to somehow think we've got it better, that we know more, that we are more enlightened than that religion or this religion or another. We must constantly be on guard about this. The Apostle Paul knew about this. He understood it perfectly. When he wrote to the church in Corinth that love was the greatest of the gifts, he was challenging that congregation there because there were people in the church in Corinth who practiced speaking in tongues. The fancy word for it is glossolalia. This is not limited, by the way, to Christians, not limited to only 2,000 years ago. There still are, 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 are religions, mostly Christian these days, but there are still are religions that practice that kind of ecstatic speech. And in fact, it existed hundreds, if not thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up. But in the church in Corinth, the ones who practiced speaking in tongues, they believed they were spiritually greater than everyone else in the church. And Paul takes them on on this. I've experienced this in my own life to a certain degree. From about junior high through my young adulthood, I often attended, not on a regular basis, but found myself attending fairly often Pentecostal-style worship services. When I was in junior high, my dad was heavily involved in the Jesus movement. There's a movie out right now about the Jesus movement in the 70s. We would have Pentecostal-style services at the beach or in the park, and there'd be a rock and roll band and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes the theology was bothersome, but there were plenty of times when the service just lifted me up, lifted everyone up to experience joy and happiness and a sense of God's grace and presence among us. <clears throat> In fact, my wife Julie and I met at a private Christian high school sponsored by a Pentecostal church. We had Pentecostal chapel services every day and Wednesday night service and a Sunday night service. You were required to attend all those. So I certainly in my senior year of high school did quite a bit of, of, of that, uh, attended quite a bit of those services. Well, three years after I graduated from college, my high school basketball coach from my senior year at that private Christian school sponsored by a Pentecostal church called me and offered me a job. 
Now, I was about 90% sure that I was going to go to seminary and pursue a call to ministry. But I thought, as a high school kid, that I would coach and teach. And he said, here's what's happening. Next year, I'm going to be promoted to principal. This will be my last year as the varsity head coach. I'd love for you to come and be my assistant. And when I become the principal, then you would take over the varsity team. And you could teach English and Bible and be a part of, be a part of our faculty. Well, like I said, I was pretty sure I was going to go off to Tennessee to go to seminary. But I was intrigued. He said, the president will call you tomorrow. I got a call the next day from the president of the school. We talked about my background and my, my degree in school, all that sort of thing. And then he asked, do you have the gift of tongues? I said, you know, in Romans 12, Paul lists the gift of teaching. I believe I have the gift of teaching. I, mean, I have a degree in, in, in education from school. Yes, but do you have the gift of tongues? Well, you know, in Romans 12, Paul says that some have the gift of encouragement. And I, I've really tried to encourage my youth ministry uh, kids and young people to, to be the best person that God calls them to be, that sort of thing. Yes, but do you have the gift of tongues? Well, you know, another gift in Romans 12 is the gift of giving. And, and my wife, Julie, and I, we give, uh, we give to the church. We give to other organizations that we care about. But do you have the gift of tongues? I finally said, I do not. Thank you very much. And I hung up the phone. You see, it's easy, isn't it? To, to get in this sort of idea that we've got it better than those out there. But let me be clear, by the way, just an aside. I've preached in Pentecostal churches since I've been ordained. I've preached in Pentecostal churches in Mexico, in Haiti, in Jamaica, and in South Africa. And I will tell you right now, those are the four best sermons I've ever preached in that Pentecostal setting. In fact, somebody who was in my church when I made that visit to Haiti, who was also a part of that trip to Haiti, she came up to me afterwards and she said, that's the best sermon you've ever preached. Why don't you preach for us like that back in Kansas City? I said, they were clapping and applauding and saying hallelujah and amen. When you start doing that, my preaching might get a little bit better. <laughs> I'm waiting for the applause, by the way. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> I even heard an amen from the choir. <laughs> and another. But let me be clear. This temptation to be arrogant and rude and think that you're somehow more advanced isn't limited to our friends on that theological side of the fence. When I was in Atlanta my first year there, I announced that we'd be doing a senior minister's Bible study in the fall, six-week overview from Genesis to Revelation. Y'all are invited Monday night at 7 o'clock. I did something similar here when I began my first year almost seven years ago. After the worship service that day, a woman waited till the very end, and she came up to me in line. There was a tone in her voice. Have you heard this tone before? Pastor Glenn, we're glad you're here. In the back of my mind, I went, uh-oh. We're glad you're here, but you need to know, most of your congregants prefer an intellectual discussion rather than mere Bible study. The temptation to think more highly of ourselves, as the Apostle Paul instructs us not to do, is pretty serious. It doesn't matter which side of the theological or liturgical fence we find ourselves on. That temptation's been real for people of Christian faith for 2,000 years. We want to be sure that we hear the old apostles' teaching. If love 
as he wrote to the church in Corinth, is not who you are, it's not at the center of who you are. If you're not loving from your very soul, heart, mind, and soul, then you are nothing more than a loud, clanging collection of gongs and cymbals. It's love or it's nothing. He's as clear as he can possibly be there. And in fact, in the Apostle Paul's day, love was not a feeling, at least not primarily. Love was a choice. If you saw someone suffering, hurting, you gave them comfort. If you saw someone else who, who seemed to be in distress, you went and offered help. If you saw another one who was celebrating, you went over and cheered along with them. That's what love does. Love is a choice to offer oneself in whatever way the world needs. More than a feeling, it's a choice. You ask Julie when she knows that I love her, she will tell you it's when he's washing the dishes or when he's vacuuming the rugs. Sure, there might be flowers and jewelry, but really, and you know this, I'm not lifting myself up as an example, you already know this. It's when we demonstrate our love in those simple things. I took care of a wasp nest, I'm really proud of this, on Friday morning. Took that, actually me and a gigantic can of Raid took care of that wasp nest. But again, it's just a simple action. Julie can give you a dozen or two dozen or dozens and dozens of examples of times I've fallen down, but we know, we know, and you know, when we choose to act in ways of love, that's when the reality is seen and understood. I was invited a, a several years ago to be a, a, a speaker, sort of a consultant for a church that had two different boards in their congregation. They were a little bit at odds with each other. There was a board of directors who oversaw all the business of the church. They counted the money, they did the strategic planning, they did all that sort of work. And there was a board of elders. The elders were the spiritual leaders of the church. And there was a, quite a bit of confusion and some conflict over who was really leading the church, the spiritual people or the business folks. And so I came in and I gave two lectures on the biblical background of this and, and what, the, what, what the church is really practicing now today that's best and most helpful, that, that sort of thing. After the two lectures, one of the elders, his name was Harvey, I remember him to this day. Harvey stood up and he said, uh, Dr. Miles, uh, thank you for your lectures, but you didn't really define who's qualified to be one of the spiritual leaders, to be one of the elders in the church. You really didn't define that. Can you give me a definition? He was sort of looking for a spiritual thermometer. You know, if you've got all these spiritual beliefs and actions, then, then you're qualified. I said, you know, here's, here's what I think. If you show up on a Sunday and the parking lot greeter didn't show up, you get out there and you greet instead. If you show up on Sunday and you see somebody in the narthex and they're obviously alone and in distress, you go over to him or to her, you introduce yourself, ask them what their name is, and just make conversation, at least make a connection. If you go to church on a Sunday and you go to use the bathroom and you notice one of the toilets is dirty, you go find the tools that are necessary and you clean the toilet. You act like that and you are qualified to be a leader in the church. Because the Apostle Paul was clear, was he not? Love is a choice. And we react to the world's need by meeting that need wherever it might be. Our culture needs a community that is as inclusive as ours. When we act that way in leadership, from the senior minister, all the clergy, all the program staff, all the different boards and, and councils and teams and committees that we have here, when we're willing to serve in the name of love, we become even more inclusive than we ever imagined we could be. And the world, maybe even especially the United States, is desperate for this inclusivity. 
desperate for a place where they're treated with kindness. Dick and Carol Meyer are fine members of our church, generous members of our congregation. They called my attention to an article by David Brooks. He normally is a, a writer for the New York Times. This piece was in The Atlantic. It was titled, How America Became Mean. The first paragraph, he lists a number of statistics defining what he calls the sadness of the United States. People are overwhelmingly sad. And in his research, when people feel sad, it oftentimes leads to meanness. My pastoral experience says the exact same thing is true. We cover sad with mad. We cover sadness with meanness. He wants us to understand that the definition of this is quite clear. Why is this happening? Let's put his words up on the screen. The most important story about why Americans have become sad and alienated and rude, I believe, is also the simplest. We inhabit a society in which people are no longer trained in how to treat others with kindness and consideration. It's that simple, isn't it? We are no longer trained in how to treat each other in kindness and consideration. But when we do, we become the inclusive place that God calls us to be. I'll close with this. There was a woman who believed she had a call for preaching. She entered a seminary, signed up for one of the preaching classes and some other classes in theology and Bible and all the rest. But she was from a denomination that didn't honor women in the pulpit. They were struggling over the idea of women being preachers. Women could teach the children. Women could organize the missions activities. But you sure would not let one, a woman in the pulpit and talk to the adults in the room. So she had a hard time finding a place where she could preach every Sunday. So instead, she and two friends began a worship service in a senior care facility every Sunday afternoon. After a few weeks, she invited her, preacher, her professor of preaching to come and hear her preach, to give her some feedback. He made his way to the senior care facility. They pointed him over towards the, the, the sunroom where all the, the folks had gathered for worship that day. He walked in and could see that everyone was surrounded by plastic plants and flowers and sil silver stainless steel trays. And all 15 in the congregation were in wheelchairs. The youngest might have been 85. Everyone was, was quite elderly. The, the young preacher, the seminarian, she gave a prayer and sang a hymn and then she read the scripture. It was from Luke's gospel. The story, you know this one well, the story where the disciples tell the parents to take your children away from Jesus. Don't, don't bother Jesus with the children. Let the children come to me, Jesus says. And this professor thought to himself, how inappropriate. Why would you read a, a, a text about children to these elderly folks? But then she began the sermon. She said, you know, I can understand why the disciples were sending the children away because after all, they're trying to get the kingdom of heaven established. They're trying to do all this work for Jesus. And the, the children, the children, they, they don't give. They don't teach. They, they don't lead. They're just going to get in the way. And then it's Jesus who says, no, these are heaven's children. Let them enjoy the service. Let them enjoy this moment. Let them come to me. As she completed the sermon, the professor could see that every one of the 15 congregants on that day was nodding their head, nodding their head in agreement. They understood 
the sermon without ever being told or having it explained to them was about them. They no longer teach or lead or can give much, but they are children of heaven as well. When we put love at the center of everything we do, when love is genuine, when love is unhypocritical, when love centers us, we become the church that God wants us to be. Amen.